The Extremist Publishing Podcast is endorsed by Heart 200, Scotland's most exciting road trip. Find out more at heart200.scot. Welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. I'm delighted to be joined today by Stirling Council archaeologist Dr Murray Cook, who's the author of, amongst many other things, Digging into Stirling's Past and the Anvil of Scottish History. Uh, Hi Tom, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks Murray. It's good to be here and good to join you today to talk about your brand new book, Bannockburn and Stirling Bridge, Exploring Scotland's Two Greatest Battles. Yes, um, well thank you very much for that Tom uh, I have to say of the books the books I've written This was the one I enjoyed the most actually um, It's uh, just actually fascinating Once you research the battles you realise what happened What survives on the ground The impact that it has on Scottish culture And actually how, um, how easy it is to explore these if you're in Stirling because that's a, an intriguing thing, isn't it? You think of the Wars of Independence as being these huge nation-shaping events, which they were, but you don't often think of the really tangible ways that they impacted on areas like Stirling and the surrounding region. Yes, um, I mean the, and of course, I think for the for the the non Scottish history reader, um, there are two Wars of Independence. Both have a massive impact on Stirling. Um, Stirling's economy collapses uh, because of the wars of independence and, and actually it isn't just Bannockburn and it isn't just Stirling Bridge those are very much in the first half the, there's actually 60 odd years worth of conflict um, and, and in effect uh, the first wars of independence run between um, the Battle of Dunbar 1296 uh, and then the, the, then the Treaty of Edinburgh in 1428 Bruce dies a year later, and you've actually got then the Second Wars of Independence. Um, and prior to that, you actually had the death of Alexander III. So you've actually got almost two generations of chaos. Um, and because Stirling was strategically so important, and, a, and also a relatively recent uh, addition to the, the Scottish nation, um, indeed as late as the, the 15th century, uh, Bannockburn is described as being on the border with England because the Lothians were were part of Northumbria. So all of this on the ground, all this huge impact, but actually try to find out about it when you're here in Stirling is it, tricky. And for me, I always remember uh, seeing an American, um, at, well, an American tourist stop me in the street and ask me how to find Bannockburn. And he didn't want the National Trust Visitor Centre because he knew enough that that was just day one. He actually wanted to find day two, and it was tricky. I, I mean, I knew how to get there, but how to describe it to him. So this book is in part a response to that. Well, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book is the way that it unpacks so many different figures and personalities from the time. Um, we, I think, I'm sure, 
we'll all be familiar with King Robert the Bruce and uh, William Wallace, but the way that you bring to life people like the Earl of Athol with his charge at Randolph Field, um, the Boone attacking Bruce, uh, people like that, it really helps to bring alive a real tapestry of history beyond just the the events that perhaps we're most familiar with. Yes, uh, I mean, uh, you you can't you you just can't conceive of the the actual the ta- the kind of in depth tapestry of all this stuff. Um, Stirling changes hands more times than any other castle in the, in the Wars of Independence. There's this incredible period in in 1304. Uh, Edward the first brings the War Wolf, uh, the largest trebuchet ever built. And is actually makes a point of systematically destroying part of the castle before he allows the keeper to surrender. Um, this chap suffers ba- clearly PTSD and ends up working for Edward um, in defending Perth against Robert the Bruce. Um, Robert the Bruce, this complicated Machiavellian character, at the time of 1304, he actually supplies materials to the War Wolf. He is officially. Um, on Edward the first side, but is secretly discussing, um, uh, kind of re- beginning again the war against Edward, but falls out with uh, the Red Common, who's actually the more solid um, leader of the Scottish independence. And again, around this time, you have the peace treaty that Edward gets people to sign. Common and Bruce have both signed. It's only Wallace. They're actually still fighting for Scotland's cause, and his capture, and ultimately his horrific evisceration in Smithfield, is Edward's price for peace. Um, absolutely incredible. And then Stirling spends the next ten years being an English garrison town. So you can imagine friendships, children, marriages, relations. I mean, think of the repercussions after uh, Vichy France when everybody got back in charge. That was only, that's half the time. There's a much greater issue here. Um, And when Robert the Bruce does capture Stirling Castle again, or rather, when he's handed the keys, um, he he, he burns the castle. He does leave, we think he leaves the chapel upstanding, but he burns it down and then abandons Stirlingshire um, and rebuilds north of the Forth. Um, so in effect, he, he's letting um, uh, this becomes a you know a no-go zone. It becomes an area an area raided and rampaged over, left, right, and centre. Um, but people still have to live their lives. The, the castle itself, when you when you go, is smaller and more focused round. Uh, all the later outworks are 18th century, so you're going back probably to beyond. Um, James the Fourth's monumental uh, towers, which when you go, you, you'll see, are the kind of um, the, the slightly stumpy towers with arrow slits. Um, so clearly, the the trebuchet either has to be in the Valley Cemetery or in the Esplanade where the car park is. There are then two rocky prominences. There's Ladies Rock and there's another one in, in Snowdon Cemetery. And we have a description that Edward the First builds a tower for his queen. To show off uh, the impact, so where else does Edward stand, unless he wants a, a if he wants an elevated view? There are only two hills, um, the one in the Snowdon Cemetery and then Ladies Rock. Um, and, and even if he didn't stand there for long, he certainly stood there for some time, 
he has to survey the um, uh, the castle and, and and figure out his plan of attack. And if the trebuchet is to be used to to pull down the walls in order to allow foot troops over, it has to be from that side. Uh, there's no point in doing it from below. Uh, th these are the only conceivable locations to attack. Now your book is fully illustrated with really striking colour uh, imagery and uh, the ones that really stand out to me are the uh, reproductions of what Stirling Castle and the surrounding area would have looked like at that point because really it was a very different structure uh, in comparison to the, the Stuart era building that we know today. Well, I, I should I should here uh, draw attention that these reconstructions were done by the wonderful Bob Marshall, who kindly let me reuse them and are going to feature in the new exhibition at the castle. and And Bob Marshall's website is is well worth having a look at. So yes, the, the, that castle. So we probably think this is a castle built by Edgar um, the First. Uh, certainly expanded by Alexander the First, and these are the the children of Malcolm the Third. That's the Malcolm from Macbeth, if you know uh, you know your Shakespeare. But he's not really the the mild meek lamb of the play. He's a horrendous, um, brutal warrior uh, and a kind of statesman. And it's him who probably brings Stirling the Lothians firmly under um, Scotland's control. Um, and to, to kind of secure Stirling, because Stirling sits at the lowest crossing point of the Forth, so if you want to go north, or if you want to stop someone going north, you do it at Stirling, and, and there's no other place in Scotland where so much blood and treasure has been shed to control such a small place. So this, this Edgar's Tower, which is uh, probably a big tower, um, a chapel, um, built by those very early kings probably lots of timber there and all of that is destroyed by Robert the Bruce so we can find other examples I, I think uh, I think I mentioned um, Bamborough is possibly a, a, a contender for what Stirling looked like now as I say Bruce burns it all down and then even if that wasn't so bad there's another there's a Victorian fire which burns down lots of other stuff and then the Stuart kings uh, running from James I to James VI extensively rework all of that area so the king's old buildings uh, the chapel of James VI of course James IV's great hall and then James V's palace um, there is nothing left because the whole thing has been reworked into a palace so, and we've even lost the intermediate phase because during the Second Wars of Independence, it's the English that uh, rebuild Stirling Castle, and and have to be forcibly ejected from it. I mean, there's, uh, I mean, th th there's another horrendous series of bloody sieges. A great deal of your book is given over to a really interesting walk around the Stirling area, which uh, looks at a variety of different locations which have particular significance relating to the Wars of Independence. Um, now for me, somebody who's, who's lived and worked in Stirling for many years, uh, one of the things I found most fascinating about it um, was not just those areas like Bulquiderot Wood, which are very specifically related to uh, the, the Wars of Independence, but um, places like, for instance, the Old Roman Roads, these were all new to me. Yes, yeah, so uh, I, I mean, I think that the, the book actually had its... Um, uh, 
inspiration in, in the first phase of COVID lockdown and I thought I would walk the battlefield and I'd actually try and see everything that was connected and, and there are things, there are clearly things that are there when Bruce was there, St Ninian's Church, Balquidrock as you say and, and these things are well known. There are then things that perhaps have uh, a later uh, tradition attached to them. So the Randolph Field stones are quite possibly um, are connected with a clash on day one between uh, Thomas Randolph, Earl of Murray, and um, Sir Robert Clifford. Um, and this, there are two standing stones. What age are the standing stones? Legend has it that they're connected to the, the Battle of um, of Bannockburn, and, and they were either there or they were used. And, and an excavation of these that I did to test this um, actually demonstrated that they weren't prehistoric at all, although they have... A, a kind of a, a lunar alignment on them, which is very strange. Um, but they're actually probably connected to the to the battle. Um, then there are other locations that nobody ever visits, which which play a, a key role. So Coxet Hill, uh, which is probably the um, the camp for the Scottish uh, troops on day one of the battle. But I also visit other locations like Gillies Hill, which everybody thinks is connected to the battle, but which there's no evidence. But why is that? And I think this then brings in a, a kind of another strand to the book, which is um, I, I, I like to draw attention to the, the poetry that uh, the Bannockburn has inspired. And one of the reasons Gillies Hill is so uh, firmly fixed in people's mind, of course, Gilly is a corruption of Gaelic for servants or the connection to the small folk who Bruce leaves behind on day one but actually play a, a kind of key role on day two um, and um, so uh, the reason that Gillies Hill gets focused on is because Walter Scott writes a, a blockbuster poem about all of this and, and you have a series of poems some are written contemporarily so Robert Baston who is an, an English uh, monk, an English friar, Carmelite friar, who is there to document the battle on behalf of Edward II, is captured by the Scots and Bruce gets him to write a poem. Um, and this is a, a first-hand account of the battle. There's then a hagiography of um, uh, Robert the Bruce's life by John Barber, um, which again celebrates it, but that's very one-handed because it doesn't include Wallace. It's astonishing. There are then later ones, like Blind Harry's Wallace, which inspired um, Braveheart. Then, obviously, Scots Wahey by um, Robert Burns. But then going all the way through, things like the Corries. Um, and what's astonishing is that that inspiration, those locations, those individuals, we can actually follow them on the ground, which is that kind of key to the book. And you also raise a really interesting historical curio that has a, a modern twist, and that's the bonnety tree. Yes, so um, now the bonnety tree is is on, uh, or was, on uh, Gillis Hills. It was a, a massive um, a massive Scots pine, and in theory it's where the small folk left their bonnets, their bonnets, so bonnety tree, before they headed um, to engage with the English army on, on day two. And and this tree was pulled down, demolished during the construction of Gillies Hill um, Quarry, which is uh, actively opposed by lots of local groups. But a seedling from the tree has been replanted and is on the corner of Gillies Hill. And, and actually you can, um, 
you can see the tree, the, the seedling and it, it's in the walk. Um, I mean, it might be worth talking a little bit about the small folk. Um, uh, so the, 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 what, what is happening is that um, day two of the battle, so day one of the battle is planned. Bruce plans it to and within an inch of its life. He has drilled his troops, he's dug pits, he knows where the English are coming, he knows when they're arriving, and in effect day one is Bruce giving the English a bloody nose. That's what it is. Strategically, it's not very important. The bulk of the English army haven't fought, they've actually spent the day resting. They're still going to get to the castle, um, but Bruce is making it harder for them. And then you have day two, which is unplanned, which Bruce doesn't know. Now, if Bruce dies on day two, that's it. He, he dies with, with the cause, but equally he has to fight because he is he's assembled his biggest ever army. He's not, strictly speaking, the legitimate king. And, and that's, that's a podcast in and of itself. Um, he killed the Red Common under a flag of truce on holy ground. He's excommunicated. So Bruce has to win to prove that he's the king, that he's a rightful king, that God believes in him. And everybody's Catholic at this point. So he is winning on day two, incredibly. And, and the book explores what's going on with that. But again, it might just be a win. It might be a technical win. It's not a rout. All the English have to do is get to the castle which they control. And, and you're back to square one. You've not inflicted a material um, loss on the English. It's just, it's always technical at this point. And what seems to happen is that the, the small folk, the camp followers, people who Bruce didn't want with him because they hadn't been trained, um, they see how the battle is turning and decide to intervene. And importantly, from Coxet Hill down to the, the Kars, where we think the bulk of day two was fought, the, the small folk are arriving from the west, i.e. between the English and the castle. And the appearance of what appears to be a new force panics the English, and you get a rout instead of a, a, an ordered retreat, which was entirely possible. And that's what transforms Bannockburn. That's what makes Bannockburn uh, the single most incredible, the single most important battle in Scottish history. And that's why the small folk are so famed uh, in, in Scottish history. Now, the historical walk that you've created um, takes place over five separate stages. Uh, and what I like most about it is the fact that whether you're somebody who lives in the area like myself or whether you're somebody who's perhaps new to Stirling or even new to Scotland, um, there's so much to learn about Scottish history on that route and so many different places uh, and events um, to, to find out about. What would you say stands out for you as being the highlights of that, that route? <laughs> well, um, oh dear, you've put me on the spot there Tom. I, I think it has to be the castle. Um, the castle sits at the centre of the walk. I, I mean, the walk was designed in stages so that you could either do it in a very long day or two reasonable days or actually just do them section at a time. Um, but the castle, the castle is there um, to control the crossing point. Both battles are about the crossing point. Control of Scotland is about the crossing point at Stirling. Stirling itself, Srivling in Gaelic, probably means the lowest the lowest crossing point of the fourth, the, the, the point that's navigable to. Um, so everything is about 
the crossing point and the castle is about the crossing point. And let's be clear, that castle, that's um, one of the finest Renaissance um, palaces in Europe. Um, this is the last gasp of the pomp and ceremony of an independent Scotland before the Union of the Crowns. Um, the reason that the castle is so well preserved is because the Stuart kings lost interest because they got the English crown um, and they just left. So you have, you have this absolutely astonishing castle in an absolutely astonishing location. This is incredible 360 views uh, across the low-lying karst which was flooded 10,000 years ago and the, the difficulty of crossing that and the fourth means that Stirling is the pinch point. Stirling is the most important place in Scottish history. Um, it's where everybody has to go and, and, and why I would say you know, it's the anvil of Scottish history. Well, Money, thanks very much for having joined us today and for discussing what I think is a really fresh and exciting new take on one of the most significant turning points in Scotland's history. Um, if you're new to the area or if you're coming to Scotland on holiday, I really hope that you will have a look at this book and consider carefully all the various different places around the area that have significance because the book is fully illustrated. It comes with really colourful and interesting maps which will uh, denote the various different places along the, uh, the route and help you to make the most of uh, your journey and one which I hope that you, you'll certainly find uh, to be of interest. Thanks very much, Tom, and, and I hope everybody enjoys the book. Murray's book, Bannockburn and Stirling Bridge, is available to buy now from all good independent booksellers and online retailers worldwide. Thanks for joining us today. I hope that you'll tune in again soon. If you would like to find out more about advertising on the Extremist Publishing Podcast, please visit their website at www.extremistpublishing.com for details.